Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born a king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Amen. Good to see all of you. Would you join me now in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is near. Though you are so glorious, though you are so transcendent, and so beyond our capabilities of being able to fully grasp and to capture, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is so near us. No matter how much we seek to run away from you, no matter how much we uh, destroy ourselves, you are a God who pursues us, you are a God who is faithful, and you are a God who will never forsake us. Father, I ask now that you would bless us as we have heard your word being publicly read. Now would you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the preaching of today's word. We pray that we will be fully attentive and that we would fully receptive to what it is you want us to learn from today's word and that we would capture it deep into our hearts, relishing every moment of all insight, of all wisdom to which we can get from it. And Lord, we ask now that we would just cling to the hope that we have in your son, Jesus. For we pray in his holy name, amen, amen. You know, one of my favorite uh, shows growing up as a kid was the show America's Funniest Home Videos. Anyone here ever watched that show, America's Funniest Home Videos growing up? Yeah, that show's still on, right? I think it's still on. For those of you who've never seen it, it's basically uh, a show where all over the country people submit their funniest home videos. and, And the audience and really the rest of America gets to decide who has the best videos and whoever ends up winning ends up getting this massive cash prize. And I used to love watching that every Sunday night at 7 p.m. on ABC right after church. And I remember, even though it's been years since I've seen it, is that every Christmas they would have a holiday special where families everywhere would submit their favorite holiday Christmas videos. And I remember one particular video where there was this kid around maybe 9 or 10 years old where parents gave him a massive, huge gift. I mean, he just saw the size of the thing, and he just starts screaming, like, ah, you know, and he just gets so excited, and he starts feverishly, like, ripping apart the gift, and he rips open the box, looks inside, he goes, oh, my gosh, thank you, thank you, thank you, and then, no kidding, after he catches his breath, he goes, thank you, and then he looks at his parents and asks, what is it? <laughs> Literally, he says, what is it? 
You know, sometimes I wonder, as Christians, we read this story, Matthew 2, which we read pretty much every year, or if you grew up in the church here every December, growing up in church, we kind of miss the meaning of what these gifts are all about, that, they, uh, that the wise men gave the baby Jesus on the very first Christmas. We read with excitement because we get so excited during the holiday seasons, this idea of the wise men coming, giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But if we actually slow down and pause for just a moment and ponder the significance of what these gifts are all about, we kind of end up like that little kid scratching our heads wondering, well, what's the meaning of this? What's so special about gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, therefore, in light of that kind of confusion, I decided that this year's sermon series through Christmas would be focusing on these particular gifts, the gifts of Christmas. So every week, we've been going through the various gifts that the wise men gave the baby Jesus. We started last week by looking at the significance of gold. Today, we come to the second gift that the wise men gave, which is this incense known as frankincense. Kind of weird. You would think that maybe this is the incense that Frankenstein uses, but no, it has nothing to do with anything German or anything Frankenstein-ish. It's, it's, a, it's an incense. So we ask ourselves, what's so significant about this particular gift that the wise men gave Jesus? And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this afternoon. First, I want to talk about what frankincense says about you. What frankincense says about you. Number two, I want to talk about what frankincense says about Jesus. And finally, I want to end it with what frankincense says about God. So what frankincense says about you, about Jesus, and about God. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, what frankincense says about you. Let me ask you this hypothetical question. If I asked you, hey, which of your five senses that you have right now, sight, touch, smell, taste, and hearing, which of those five, if you had to give up one of them, if you had to sacrifice one of those five senses, which one would it be? Hmm? Which of the five senses that you possess right now would you be willing to sacrifice if you had to give up one? Think about it for just a moment. I'll give you a couple seconds. Any thoughts? If you said that you would give up the sense of smell, you're in good company because according to a recent city data poll, most people who were polled said over 71% that they would give up the sense of smell. Out of all the five senses that people would give up, smell was the very first one that they were willing to get rid of. Now, of course, when you initially hear that result, it kind of makes sense. I mean, because when you consider the kind of handicaps that people suffer when they lose one of the five senses, I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's painfully obvious when you lose the other four senses, right? We know how hard life gets when you lose the other four senses. I mean, in a crowd, you can easily pick up a person who cannot see, a person who cannot hear, even someone maybe who cannot even touch or sense anything because they're bumping into walls or stepping on glass or something of that sort. But when was the last time to where you easily spotted someone who couldn't smell, who did not have the sense of smell? Probably not recently, probably not ever, right? Because it just seems that the sense of smell, if you lose it, yeah, it is kind of unfair. Yeah, it is a little bit inconvenient, but it's not as detrimental as losing the other senses. So yes, of course, if we had to give up one of the five senses, then of course it would make total sense to give up the sense of smell because clearly the sense of smell is not as significant, is not as important as the other four senses, right? Well, it depends. It depends on how important your memories are. What? What do you mean your memories, Pastor John? Yeah, your memories. Let me explain. There is a woman, a research scientist by the name of Maria Larson, who teaches at Stockholm University. And her main body of research, human memory. Human memory. And what 
uh, Dr. Lawson wanted to do is an interesting experiment. She wanted to see how far back old people, like people in their late 80s, early 90s, how far back they can go and remember their oldest memories. And what she decided to do is to stimulate each of their five senses separately to see which sense could cause them to remember their oldest memory. So, for example, she would show them uh, an old picture, a famous advertisement that was popular during their young age. Or she would play for them an old song that was very popular during their young age. And interestingly enough, all the senses that she tested caused them to remember as far back to their late teens, early 20s. When these these old people, when they were being tested through their various senses, they can only think back as far as their early teens or late 20s, except for the sense of smell. Whenever this doctor stimulated their sense of smell, their olfactory senses, to where uh, they were surrounded by familiar scents, familiar aromas, familiar odors. Do you know how far back people were able to remember? As young as five years of age. Only the sense of smell was able to cause people to remember some of their long forgotten, some of the more precious memories that they've ever experienced in life. Only the sense of smell. Now what that tells us is, is that the sense of smell is not as insignificant as we may think it is. Really because science has shown us that sensing of smell and our memories are so inextricably linked to where if you lost the sense of smell... You not only lose your memories, you not only lose your history, you lose yourself. You're almost like a person who has no memory whatsoever, as if you have no identity whatsoever. So clearly, the sense of smell is vitally important to who we are as human beings. Yes, indeed. And in fact, there is no group of people who knew this very well than the ancient Jew, the person who made up the people of God during the days of the Old Testament. I am convinced that if I ever asked an ancient Jewish worshiper of God that hypothetical question, hey, which of the five senses would you give up? Almost always none of them would ever say in a million years, hey, I want to give up my sense of smell. No, no, no. They would never in a million years ever give up their sense of smell. Why? Because if you ever study the Old Testament, and specifically if you ever see how they worship God, you would know that smelling, the sense of smell, was vital. It was crucial to their worship of God. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 2, and starting in the first verse, we read this. When you present grain as an offering to the Lord, the offering must consist of choice flour. You are to pour olive oil in it, sprinkle it with frankincense, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. The priest will scoop out a handful of the flour moistened with oil together with all the frankincense and burn this representative portion on the altar. It is a special gift a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Here we see one of the very first instances where we come across frankincense in the Bible. And how is it being used? It's being used as an offering to the Lord, as a sacrifice, as a gift offering, as a grain offering. Right? Specifically, it was used in the context of offering a grain offering to God. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the various offerings in the Old Testament, let me explain to you what the grain offering was. The grain offering, according to Numbers chapter 28 was a daily offering that the people of God offered morning and night, every single day, from the crack of dawn before the sun came out to the very last thing they did when the sun went down. And the primary purpose of what this grain offering was for was to give thanks to God. It was the Thanksgiving offering. So daily, morning and night, this offering was given to God as a way to express our thanks to the Lord for his many provisions, for his many blessings, for his grace 
for his mercy. The grain offering specifically was for the purpose of saying, thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done in my life. That is what the grain offering was for. Now, when you consider with what I just said a moment ago, that sense of smell is tied to our deepest memories to where we always remember it and to this idea that part of this offering required frankincense that, it, that, sat, that, that uh, excited our sense of smell. What does this tell us about what God wants of us? Any idea? I'll tell you what it means. God wants his people to never forget that we are to always be thankful. The grain offering teaches us that God wants his people to always to remember to give thanks. To never forget that they are to always be thankful every moment of their lives. I mean, this is why he commanded this offering would be given every day, twice a day, morning and night. Because he wanted to instill into them, into their deepest memories to where they're so young to when they're very old, that there isn't a moment that goes by, there isn't a day that goes by, there isn't a year that goes by to where as they walk on this earth, they are always to give thanks to God. Our God wants his people to always have a posture of thanksgiving towards him because of the fact that he is so good, okay? That is what we need to understand. Now, here's the thing, folks. In our day and age, in our part of worship today, we don't burn incense unless you're part of like, I don't know, the Catholic church or the Orthodox church. But here in our church, we don't burn frankincense as part of our worship to God. It's not included as part of our praise to the Lord. And yet, nevertheless, this command to give thanks is still very relevant to us today because just open the New Testament and you see command after command of God telling us over and over, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord over and over, right? All the apostles, all the writers of scripture in the New Testament are saying, even though you don't have to give incense to the Lord, you still have to give thanks to God constantly over and over. Ad infinitum, you read it, give thanks to God, which begs the question, What does that say about us when God is constantly telling us to do something? Let me ask you, growing up as a kid, did your parents always tell you to do something over and over and over again? I don't know, something like, clean your room, clean your room, clean your room, do your homework, do your homework, right? You ever have a situation where mom and dad is always telling you something over and over again? Maybe even added after the fact, how many times do I have to tell you, clean your room? Clean your room. Clean your room. Someone just outed somebody over there. Why do our parents or why do our teachers, why do your pastors always tell you to do something? Why does God always tell you to do something over and over again? Doesn't it assume that you're not doing it? Hence the constant need of being told over and over again. One of the reasons why God tells us to Don't ever forget to give thanks to me. And he says it over and over again. is because we always do forget to give thanks to him. We always do neglect the responsibility and the obligation we have of always being thankful to God. See, that is what frankincense says about us. It's not a very flattering statement. And that is frankincense says that you, though you should be thankful, though you should always be aware of how thankful you should be, in most cases we're not. In most cases, we are not aware of how thankful we are. Instead, what are we? If we're not being thankful, what are we doing instead? Well, what's the opposite of a thankful person? Complaining person, right? You guys know what it means to complain? 
It's when you whine and moan, like, oh, my life is falling apart. My life is not going the way it is. You ever been around a complaining person? Right? You ever notice how bitter people are when they're complaining? How they have this chip on their shoulder? How they act as if, you know, they're entitled to things, right? Things that are not happening to them. And so they think everyone around them owes them their sympathy, their grace, their serving attitude. Oh, yeah, you got to serve me. You got to pay attention to me. You ever been around someone like that? You ever remember how annoying it is being around such people? Of course you do. Which is probably why many of you can sympathize how God reacts whenever he's around complaining people. Let me read to you a situation, a real conversation that happened between God and Moses in response to Israel, God's people chronically complaining and moaning about how much their life sucks. Listen to what God says to Moses in Numbers chapter 14, starting in the 11th verse. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. (laughs) Needless to say, God hates it. I mean, he really hates it when his people complain. In fact, he hates it so much that he thinks it justifies destroying them. (laughs) God's like, oh, you're going to complain? Boom, lightning. Boom, boils. Boom, you know. You're hearing that, you're like, whoa, God, what's with the reaction, Lord? Isn't this a little bit too much? I mean, yes, I know how it's annoying to be around complaining people. It's really frustrating to be around people who's always whining and complaining about life. But really, destroy them? Kill them? I mean, we're not talking about murder here. We're not talking about rape. These people are just complaining. Is it really worth their life to complain like that to you, Lord? I mean, especially when you consider some of the things that people have to go through in this life, some of the struggles that they have to go through, some of the sufferings they go through in life. Surely people like that have a pass on you, don't they, God? Don't they at least have some right to complain? You know what God would say to that? No, (laughs) they don't. Scripture teaches us that God does not accept a complaining from any of his people. If you are a follower of God, and you are devoted to him, to where he is your God, you are his people, God will never accept your complaint as ever a justified behavior if you are his. Why? To explain, let me go to my next point. What frankincense says about Jesus. So our passage teaches us that when the wise men came to Jesus, they offered these gifts. Gold, which we looked at last week. Myrrh, which we're looking at next week. And then they offered this gift, frankincense. And it therefore begs the question, out of all the possible gifts they could have given the baby Jesus, why frankincense? I mean, they had probably hundreds upon thousands of various gifts they could have given Jesus. But out of all that, they decided to give frankincense? What's so special about frankincense? What's so significant about frankincense? Well, some New Testament scholars try to explain that answer or try to answer that question by simply saying, well, it makes sense because frankincense was a very expensive item. It was very rare. It only grew in certain parts of the Middle East, right, off of trees known as the Baswala tree, right? And it was very rare. It was very expensive. In fact, some scholars go so far as to say that that the equivalent weight of frankincense to gold actually was more expensive than gold. In other words, frankincense was more valuable to where if you had a pound of frankincense versus a pound of gold, the frankincense would be worth more money. And so clearly, frankincense was so valuable in the ancient world that 
of course these wise men would give something incredibly valuable. So how else to express how much they value the baby Jesus by giving him something very expensive? Now, on the one hand, that answer makes a lot of sense. And of course, that is partially true. However, that is not the main reason why these people gave frankincense to the baby Jesus. There is actually another reason aside from just the fact that it was very expensive. But what is that reason? Well, let me explain. Let me ask you a question. Whenever you give a Christmas gift to someone, or any gift for that matter, do you just randomly pick any gift without thinking and just buy it, wrap it, and then give it to that person? Do you just purchase any gift without ever considering if this is a kind of gift that the person you're giving to would either want it, need it, or use it? Probably not. I mean, if you're a half-decent human being, you would at least be considerate enough to say, hey, I'm going to buy a gift for my wife, what would my wife want? What would she need? What would she want to use? Or my husband or my boyfriend or my parents, right? A normal courtesy would say that you want to make sure that if you're giving a gift, you want to make sure it's relevant to the person, right? That would be the wise thing to do. You know, I wasn't always wise when giving gifts to my wife, for example. A few years ago, I decided on Christmas to get her a gift that I thought was incredibly valuable. It was a little devotional book. Uh, by the letters of John Newton, one of my favorite Puritans, right? And I bought this for her thinking, oh, she's going to love it because I really want it too, right? And so I gave it to her. She opened it up. She takes it out, and she looks at it, and I say, happy Christmas or Merry Christmas, honey, you know? And she just looked at me and had this smile. Her mouth was smiling, but her eyes weren't smiling. You know how people do that? You know how they can tell they're not really happy because their eyes aren't smiling with their mouth. They just go like, Thanks, honey. This is so nice, right? I was a fool. I wasn't very wise when it came to giving gifts. But these men that gave gifts to Christ, they literally were wise men. They were men of wisdom, which means they were very intentional. They were very thoughtful, very rational when thinking about these sorts of matters. And so clearly the question becomes, well, what was their reasoning? What was going through their minds to where their wisdom dictated that, hey, if I'm giving a gift to Jesus, what kind of gift would be appropriate for him? What kind of gift would be relevant for him? Hey, let's give frankincense. Why? What is so relevant about frankincense to where it would be an appropriate gift to Jesus? Well, to answer that question, let's take a look one more time at that passage, Leviticus chapter 2. Again, we just read it a moment ago. We're going to read it again. Listen. And as you hear it, again, for the second time, pay attention to who is actually handling, who is actually interacting with the frankincense. Let's read it one more time. When you present grain as an offering to the Lord, the offering must consist of choice flour. You are to pour olive oil on it, sprinkle it with frankincense, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. The priest will scoop out a handful of the flour, moistened with oil, together with all the frankincense, and burn this representative portion on the altar. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Who is the actual person handling the gift? Is it the people themselves? No. Who is it? The priest, right? The priest. Isn't that interesting? Even though God commanded every individual within Israel to offer this grain offering daily, twice a day, they themselves didn't actually give it to God directly. They went to a middleman, right? They went to a representative, who would represent them to God, a mediator, right? That is what the priest did. That was the function of the priest. That was what they used frankincense for. That was how they executed their work as God's priest for the people of God. Now, think about that for a moment. When you realize that's the background behind the usage of frankincense within the people of Israel, what are these wise men implying 
about Jesus? What are they indirectly or implying about who Jesus is for God's people today? Aren't they implying that Jesus is the mediator? That he's the one who goes on behalf of his people, Christians, to God? Which means it's not that you and I can get directly to God, but we go to God through Jesus, right? He is our mediator. He is the go-between between us and God, right? And indeed, that is what Scripture says, who Jesus is for us. Jesus is our great mediator. He is our great priest. Take a listen to what it says in Hebrews 4 about Jesus. The author writes this, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. So, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus is our great high priest. You know what that means? He is our greatest advocate. He is the one who is most for us. If I could use our modern language, he is our great defense attorney, right? He's on our side. Why is that so important to realize? Why is that so important to understand? It's important to understand because if there is anyone who has the most right to complain about anything, it's Jesus. Jesus, more than any other person, has the right to be the one who complains the most. And here's the question. What would Jesus be complaining about? Well, really a better question is, who would Jesus be complaining about? You know who it is? It's all of you. It's me. It's every single human being that walks on this earth. There is no other person except Jesus who has the right to complain. And he would complain about every single human being that walks on this earth. Why? Because Jesus, our great high priest, he's also the creator of the universe. That means he created you. He created me. And he created us to function and to live a certain way. And yet the fact of the matter is we grieve him, we reject him, we sin against him by living out in accordance to how he has called us to live in the way that he created us to live. If there is any reason for Jesus to complain, it's because you and I do not live the way that God, Jesus, created us to live. Jesus created us to be kind, but instead we are cruel. Jesus created us to be generous, but instead we are selfish. Jesus created us to put others ahead of ourselves, but we always put ourselves ahead of other people. Jesus created us to protect the weak, but we always take advantage of the weak so that we can advance. Jesus created us to worship him and his Father and the Spirit. But instead, we always worship ourselves by making our lives all about us and making the purpose of our existence for our own happiness, for our own satisfaction, rather than for the happiness and satisfaction of God. Jesus, more than any other person, has every right to complain about you, to have the biggest chip on his shoulder because of you, and therefore he has every right to see you to where he sees himself as your prosecutor and throw the full extent of his divine law against you and judge you in condemnation. But here's what's so amazing. Instead of being our prosecutor, what is he? He's our defense attorney. He's our great high priest. He's our greatest advocate. He is our greatest defender. 
Instead of being against us, which he has every right to do, he is for us to the point where he even jeopardizes himself so that you would not be jeopardized from him. Take a listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, starting in the 6th verse we read, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Listen again to that last verse, verse 11. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, has made us friends with God. Christian, do you want to know why you have no right to complain no matter what you go through in this life, no matter what hardships you're suffering? You want to know why? Because the one who had the right to complain about you, more so than your right to complain about anything or anyone in your life, chose instead to delight in you. That is what this gospel teaches us. That is what frankincense teaches us about Jesus. It says that your creator, Jesus, loved you so much to where even though you were his enemies by the way that you were living your life, he gave his life for your sake by dying on the cross for your sins. How much more should that teach us how we have no reason to complain whatsoever? What could you be possibly be going through in your life? What could you possibly be deprived of? What could be taken away from you to where you would ever feel justified and complaining and being bitter and acting like as if everyone owes you and you're the greatest victim of all when you have been given in Christ an inheritance that it, something you can never be entitled to, something that you can never earn, something that you can never deserve. What could you possibly be complaining of when you have the greatest treasure of all? When you have the favor of God, the forgiveness of God, the love of God, and the hope of eternal life with God in Jesus. That is why, Christian, you are to never, ever complain. Because to complain is to elevate something as if it's greater than what God has given you in Christ. When in fact, compared to Christ, it is nothing more than rubbish, as Paul writes in Philippians 2. You need to understand, Christian... That as long as you are in Christ, as long as you receive the divine favor of his mercies, there is no ground for you to complain. There is no reason for you to be bitter. There is no reason as to why you should walk around acting as if you're entitled to everything and that people around you should make you the center of their attention. None. Because you have Christ. Now, with all that said, you would think that there's nothing more for me to say because usually in my sermons, once I get to Jesus, I'm done with the message, right? What else could Pastor John say? Well, actually, I do have one more thing to say. One final thing that we need to understand about the significance of frankincense. And to explain, let me go to my final point, what frankincense says about God. Now you're thinking, wait a minute. 
what frankincense says about God. Wait, wasn't the previous point what frankincense says about Jesus? And if Jesus is God, aren't you just being redundant here? Aren't you repeating yourself? You know, why are you doing that? Well, I'm not repeating myself. Because the God I'm referring to is not Jesus. I'm referring to his Father. God the Father. For those of you here who never been to church before, are investigating, you're like, what are you talking about? I thought Jesus was your God. He is. But now you're saying there's another God? Yes, well, let me explain. We Christians believe in this doctrine known as the triune God. We believe in a God who's one person, but he's made up of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you're thinking, okay, so you believe in three gods. No, we believe in one God, one being, manifested in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is your God suffering from multiple personality disorders? No. One person, no, I'm sorry, one God, see, I'm getting confused. One God made up of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, if you're confused, it's okay. So is the church. We've been confused about the Trinity for years, and in fact, it's fitting that we're confused about God. It's fitting that we don't understand the nature of God because he's God. I mean, if you could figure out God, if you could understand him fully, would that say much about him as God? I mean, don't we typically say to somebody, man, I know you like the back of my hand. I know what you're thinking before you're thinking. I know you better than you know yourself. What, is, what are you implying about your relationship with that person? You have authority over them. Do you know them better, right, than, than they do? We can never do that with God. We can never fully comprehend the mystery of his being, the mystery of his nature. So, of course, there should be aspects of our understanding of God, even when he reveals himself to us, that we're like, I don't get it, Lord. You're so beyond me. You're so above me. Rightfully so, right? God is one being made up of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And let's just leave it at that, okay? But for just a moment, I do want to focus on God the Father. Why? Because he is the primary recipient of Jesus' ministry as our great high priest. He is the God who receives the offering that Jesus makes on our behalf as our great high priest. Remember how we talked about Leviticus 2 and how it says that the priests, the sons of Aaron, would give an offering to God on behalf of God's people? And as God's people would smell the offering being burnt up through the flames, they would smell the burnt frankincense. And as they smell it, it would trigger their memories to where they would always remember, hey, I always need to give thanks to God. Remember, right? But here's the thing. The people offering the gift, the grain offering, were not the only ones remembering. They weren't the only people part of this party that's remembering at that moment. You know who else was remembering at that time? God. God the Father. When this grain offering was being given to uh, to to God on behalf of God's people, God was also remembering what he was thankful for, what he was remembering about the significance of this gift, which is what? He's remembering you. He's remembering you. You know, the grain offering is not only to teach us that we're to always be thankful to God, but it's also trying to teach us that our God, our Father in heaven, that he's always thinking of you. There isn't a day that goes by, there isn't a moment goes by where he is not aware of who you are. You are always on his mind. You are unforgettable in his mind. He's always thinking of you. No matter how long it's been you've been to church, no matter how long it's been since you prayed to him, no matter how long you have lived in debauchery, no matter how long you've walked away from him, no matter how long it's been to where you even read the Bible or lifted up a prayer, God is always thinking of you constantly, always. 
You guys ever have that painful experience where no matter how much you interact with somebody, no matter how much you tell them your name, right, they always forget who you are. Right? You ever have that experience? Like, hey, Carl, Bobby, Mark, John, John, yeah, hi, nice to see you again. You ever have that happen to you? Happen to me? Right? You remember the humiliation, the anger, right, the frustration you feel of knowing that in this person's eyes you're absolutely worthless, you're not worth remembering, you're completely forgettable? Well, in Jesus Christ, as our high priest, where he offers himself as the sacrifice, God never forgets you. Your heavenly father always remembers you. But therein lies the question, how does he remember us? How does God the father remember us? You know, I'm sure many of you guys can remember different people from your past, right? And I would say they broadly fit into two categories. You remember people because they were very special to you and you love them very much to where they become unforgettable or they did something really bad to you to where you can't forget them because you can't forgive, People in your past that you remember with clarity either fall into those two categories, right? Oh, yeah, I remember that dude from second grade stabbed me behind my back. I'm never going to forget this guy. Or... You can always remember that first love, that first kiss, that first moment where you were so in love, right? How does God remember us? In what kind of categorical way does he remember us to where we're never, ever forgettable? Well, I thought I would uh, read to you a quote, an interesting quote from Gus Van Beek. He is an archaeologist uh, at the Smithsonian Institute. Listen to how he describes the way frankincense burns. He writes this. Can I have it up there? Quote, Frankincense burns readily, giving off a sooty, slightly scented black smoke. But when the flames are extinguished, it smolders for a considerable time and yields a white, delicately aromatic smoke. Isn't that interesting? Here you have frankincense that when it's burned in the flames, in the fire, and remember in the Bible, fire represents what? God's anger, his wrath, his hatred, right? His frustrations against those who are being burned in the fire, right? Those who are condemned in hell, right? And what happens as frankincense is being burned? It gives off this disgusting, sooty, black smoke to where you choke on it. You can't breathe. You can't go anywhere near it, right? But once the high priest extinguishes the flame, once the flame is over, frankincense transforms into giving off this clean, white, aromatic smoke to where it's so pleasant you're drawn to it and you just want to Take it all in, right? What does that symbolically teach us? Doesn't it teach us that Jesus, our high priest, through the spilling of his blood, extinguishes the fiery flames of God's judgment against us so that when we are covered by his blood, all that is left of us is this beautiful, clean, clear, aromatic fragrance to where when God is in our presence, he smells us, and we just give off a pleasant scent. Huh? You know, some people don't shower every day. Although they can fool people, right? Some people look like they're very clean. But sometimes when you get close to them, like, I don't know, maybe this close, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Even though you look clean, you obviously aren't, right? They don't pass the smell test. Someone can look and appear as if they are righteous, Right? But God can see beyond that what they really are. That never happens for those of us who cling to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. 
Because through Christ, we give off a pleasant, honest fragrance to the Lord, to our Father in heaven. For he takes great delight in us so that whenever he remembers us, he doesn't think of something nasty. He doesn't think of anything offensive. He always thinks of something pleasant, something soothing, something to which he just wants to take all in and pull close into his heart. Right? That is what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that your Father in heaven never forgets you. He always remembers you, and he remembers you with great joy and great delight. You passed the smell test when it comes to him. Now, why is that so important for us to remember? Why is it so important for us to remember that our Father in heaven always remembers us, never forgets us? Do you know why? I'll tell you why. When a person is complaining about life, when a person is bitter about life, you know what they're really complaining about? They're complaining that they've been forgotten by life. Do you know that? Man, I didn't get that promotion again. I got passed over again. Are these people blind? Do they not see how hard I work? Do they not see what I've done for this company? Did they just forget me? When your best friend gets married and you've been dating longer than they have, you're like, what is wrong with men? What is wrong with women? Have I just been forgotten by the other gender? When you see your friends getting all this success, and you're like, what about me? Have I been forgotten by the success fairies? What is going on? Why am I not getting the recognition that I feel I deserve? Why do I act like as if, why do people act as if I don't even exist? Why do I feel that I've been forgotten by life? That's why people get bitter. They feel utterly invisible. They feel passed over. They feel forgotten. But here's the thing. Our God in heaven, our Father in heaven, our Heavenly Father, the one who is the source of all love, the one who is the source of all success, the one who is the source of all significance, that God, your Father, he loves you. He never forgets you. And when you let that sink into your heart, that's how you get free from complaining. That's how you get free from bitterness. You see? Because the one who truly matters in remembering you remembers you constantly. That's how you break out of that bitter complaining spirit, that chip on your shoulder, that sense of entitlement where everyone owes you. No, when you remember your Father in heaven remembers you, never forgets you, you feel like you are the most famous celebrity on this, on this earth. You feel like you have everything. What more could you ask for? And therefore, what do you do? You stop fixating on yourself on how much this world has forgotten you, and you celebrate how much your God has lavished his attentive care, his loving gaze upon you. And what that means is you don't fixate on people owing you anything, but instead you start saying, let me help you out. Let me serve you. Let me think of you instead of thinking of myself because I already have that covered. My God thinks of me, so let me now think of you. Let me now see how I can hurt, uh, not hurt you, bless you, serve you empower you, encourage you. Don't you see? Frankincense teaches us so much about how our God sees us, how often he thinks of us, how much he is for us, and therefore why you should never complain but be a source of tremendous good and encouragement to those around you. My hope for you this holiday season is that you would never feel that you're missing out at the end of the year, people always kind of catalog what's gone right, what's gone wrong, what is missing in their life, things they think they deserve, 
things they've missed out on. Instead, I would ask you to consider the profound meaning of what frankincense says about your God, about your Jesus, and therefore how you should respond with thanksgiving. Would you consider being more thankful this year rather than always adding more to your gripe of how much your life is no good because nothing is going your way? If you have Christ, you have the Father. If you have the Father, you have everything. And therefore, there is no reason to complain. Let's be more thankful this upcoming year. And let's be more gracious because of that thankfulness that we have. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would enable us to see how rich we truly are. How much we really have. Lord, it's so easy for us to complain and to be bitter about what we don't have or of what's been taken away from us. But Lord, we're so thankful that we have a treasure in Christ that moth and rust cannot destroy, that thieves cannot break in and steal. We have an affection and a care that goes beyond any reach of robber or or thievery or, or stealing. God, we are so thankful that we have you. And Lord, it is so easy for us, especially now during this holiday season, to gripe and complain and to be bitter acting as if everything is owed to us when instead we are forever in your debt because we are recipients of the greatest blessing and the greatest treasure of all. We have received your forgiving, loving mercy so that we can have the hope of being with you forever and ever in eternity. God, would you help my brothers and sisters? Would you help me whenever we find ourselves being tempted to complain and to be bitter and to be so unthankful? Instead, Lord, help us to live out the underlying message of what frankincense teaches us about this holiday season about your son jesus what it teaches us about you our heavenly father would you enable us to do that so that we would be transformed in being a blessing to the world a source of encouragement for we ask all these things in jesus name amen we're not going to give god his tithes in our offering for visiting us today we don't expect you to give but to our members let's give god his tithes